Once I was at a family reunion with Cindy, it was her family, and um, this is years ago, but she had somehow convinced me to share a devotion at the family reunion. So I did that, and I don't, I don't really even remember where in the Psalms I spoke from, but I spoke from the Psalms, and you know, it was short, 15, 20 minutes, two hours, not sure. <laughs> But at, when I was finished, and I really don't even know who this is, one of the men that was, was there, he came up to me. He said, that was good. But it was from the old. And his implication was, we shouldn't be preaching and teaching from the Old Testament. We should be preaching from the New Testament. And I, you know, I had a small discussion with him and moved on because Cindy's family in a family reunion and she doesn't want her husband debating in the midst of that. But his, his, a lot of people feel that way. Um, even by default, sometimes we just take and just forget about the Old Testament, right? It's as though we tear our Bibles in half and throw two-thirds, or not really in half, throw two-thirds of them away. Many Christians have that attitude toward the Old Testament, even if it's not explicitly stated. And today we're going to see the end of the second missionary journey. And we're going to see Paul has a very different mindset. As Paul winds up the journey, we will see a couple of things. And I, I have to tell you, this week was difficult. This was a, a difficult text to, to shape into a sermon. I tried to give it to Corey, but he wouldn't take it last week. So <laughs> he kicked it back to me. But... Um, so I really agonized over this one, and, and hopefully there's some, something good in here for you. But um, not all of them are easy. Many of them are somewhere in the middle. Sometimes the Lord spoon feeds you, and other times you agonize up until the time you walk up here. So if you're a teacher, expect to suffer sometimes. It's just part of it. But today we're going to see the end of the second missionary journey and we'll walk through this text. And I, uh, just a couple of things stuck out to me that I just wanted to pause and, and, and think about and bring out. So really we'll focus a little bit on two of the verses. But we'll look at 18, 12 to 22. We'll see the second missionary journey end. And hopefully we can see the, the main point from here that I at least want to bring out. Is like Paul, we should highly value the Old Testament scriptures and seek to understand them and apply them in light of Christ. We can't forget the gospel when we're studying and reading and, and, and applying and teaching the Old Testament. First, look, I want you to see, look at the first section here. Paul is falsely accused. Basically, he's falsely accused of rejecting the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. He's, they, the Jews have an agenda. But in verses 12 to 17, it says this. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the region, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. So they're, they're bringing Paul to court. They're seizing him and dragging him into court. They have a charge to bring against Paul and they want the judge to side with them. So Gallio, he's an interesting guy. Gallio is the son of Seneca the Older and brother of Seneca the Younger, famous philosopher. Seneca was a tutor to Nero. And it seems that maybe Seneca pulled some strings to get Gallio this proconsul position. But he is, he is, what is a proconsul? It's a Roman official. It's the chief, chief judicial, judicial, I can't talk today. 
Anybody else want to do this? The chief judicial officer. He ruled over the province under the control of the Senate. And so he would, in his, in his um, residence outside of that, there would be this huge bema, right? Or judgment seat that you could go up on stairs. And it was used for various things. One of them was to, to decide uh, justice or, or decide trials. And that word tribunal there, um, it says they brought him before the tribunal. That's just Bema. That's, they brought him before the judge, the judgment seat. They brought him to, to be judged. They brought him to the authority, and they're making a charge against Paul before the tribunal. So this is what they said, and we'll come back to this. But they said, this man is persuading people to worship contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have a reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law. See, he sees this as a dispute over their own law and they have an agenda. He says, see to it yourselves. Since this is about your law, I'm not going to judge this. You see to it yourselves. So basically in our, in our understanding of things, he, he kicked them out of court. He dismissed the suit. He wouldn't hear it. And it says he drove them. And obviously he didn't jump down off the seat and drive them. He's like, bailiff, clear the court. Get these people out of here. Now there was no bailiff then, but you get what I'm saying. He said, I won't be judged over things about your own law. And so, for whatever reason, we're not told. It says in verse 17, and so they seized, they're going to they're get somebody. And they can't get Paul, evidently, because Jesus has protected him as he promised. So it says, and they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention. Again, we don't know why. Maybe he was this, the one who sort of whipped up this attempt at a lawsuit. And they're like, dude, you know. Maybe he was sympathetic to Paul. I mean, there is a guy, if you read 1 Corinthians, who is Paul's amanuensis, who, the writer, who has this same name. So they keep losing rulers of the synagogue to the gospel. I don't know. They didn't tell us why they beat him. But they're, you know, they're just having a fit right there in front of the judge. And the judge is like, whatever. He didn't do anything about that. So they bring this charge, and the charge is what I want to look at. They said in verse 13, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. And the question is, what law? Are they talking about Roman law? Or are they talking about Jewish law? And I think they're kind of pulling on both ropes here. These people are causing people to worship God contrary to our law. Why would they say that? Well, Judaism was a legal religion in the empire. And Christianity was seen as sort of an offshoot from Judaism. So it was kind of included in that legal religion by default status in that area. So, but the Jews are trying to say, mm -mm, these people are not us. These people are not Jews. They're teaching people to worship contrary to the law. The implication to the judge is they're not legal, so you should get them. 
You should route them out. You should do whatever you need to do. You should get them to leave us alone. What they don't say is, because people keep leaving the synagogue and going next door. He had just gone next door and was preaching and teaching the gospel and people are bleeding out of the synagogue over there. Even the ruler, Crispus. And they are upset. So they're trying to get Paul and the Christians in trouble with the authorities in the city to quell this. They're basically saying, this Christian thing is a new religion. It's not Judaism. It's a new religion. It's not legal. So please stamp it out. Gentiles are not being taught to follow the Mosaic law. So you should do something about this. We didn't do that. He kicked it out of court. Now stop and think about this a minute. Think about the Jews and think about their history. And think about um, how important Moses and the Torah and the law is to the Jews. How important the temple and all of that being revealed from God. And these people, at least at this point, are Jews that don't have eyes of faith. They don't see. So they think that is God's way. It'll always be. Temple, priesthood, sacrifices, Moses and his law. We know who Moses is, but we don't know about this fellow. You know, all of that kind of thing. But they take the Mosaic Covenant seriously. They think it is permanent. And so they see Paul coming in with news of this Messiah. And sure, he's, he's teaching some things that show progression and fulfillment and old covenant to new covenant. But they don't get that. They don't have eyes to see. They know that in the past, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom went into captivity for not keeping God's law. And so they are serious about that and they don't see, they don't get the gospel. That's why I understand them being upset and taking it seriously. But they're just failing to see the Messiah Jesus as the Messiah they've hoped for. And his covenant is superior and a fulfillment of the old covenant. They can't see, to use some of Paul's terms in 2 Corinthians 3, they don't see the fading glory of the old covenant. The Mosaic Covenant. Because the veil it says is on their heart. Until you come to faith in Christ. And the veil is taken away. And you know because what did Moses do? He was up on the mountain with God. He came down. His face was glowing. He put a veil over it. It says. So that they might not see it fading. The fading glory. They don't see the fading glory of the old covenant. They don't see the fulfillment of Jeremiah's words. That God said he would make a new covenant. So they're not ready to make that progression. But I just was their accusation true? Was their accusation true? Was Paul teaching people, Gentiles and Jews, was he teaching them to worship God in a manner contrary? I think that's the key word. Contrary to the Mosaic, Mosaic Covenant or to Moses. Because he, remember, Paul has left the synagogue. He's meeting next door. Many have followed him. They were being baptized. They were meeting for worship. They're learning about the life, you know, life in Jesus, their Messiah. And surely Paul was teaching them the fulfillment that is in Jesus. Right? That Jesus is the true and greater temple. And that in Him we are the temple. That we are the priesthood in fulfillment. He's the high priest, Right? 
There's no more need for sacrifices. So, yes, there, was, there were differences happening in Paul's teaching the fulfillment, the, the movement from Old Covenant to New Covenant. But they don't see that. They just see Him as changing everything. When they meet for worship, it's very simple. The Christians would meet. They would pray. They would sing. They would read the Word. Teach the Word. Preach the Word. They would celebrate baptism and communion and, and very simplified worship. And so they're holding on to the law. They see this as a change. They're bringing the charge. They don't see the fulfillment that is happening. But Hebrews 10.1 says this. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these things. See that? The law was the shadow. The Mosaic Covenant was the shadow of the good things to come in Christ. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. But the point I want to make there is the, the New Testament worship and the, New Te the things that Paul was doing was not contrary to the Mosaic Covenant. It was complementary to it because it was the fulfillment of it. But they don't get that. They don't understand yet. And I'm sure some of them came to. We keep seeing, because Paul stays, we'll see. And the gospel keeps going forth. And, you know, they're bleeding members into the church. Because Paul is preaching the gospel. And he's showing the fulfillment in Christ. And he's showing it, what? He's showing it from the old, what we call the Old Testament. The New Testament's not complete yet. He's preaching Christ from the Old Testament and showing them that Jesus is the Messiah. Who fulfills all of the scriptures. I mean just one example that we all know. Isaiah 53. Paul hasn't booted the Old Testament. It's his Bible. And he's showing that Christ has come. And he's the Messiah they expected. Who has died for our sins. And been raised from the grave. Look at this from Hebrews. And listen. If you, wanna, if you want the Old Testament system explained to you. And Christ compared to Moses. And the superiority of Christ. And his person. And his priesthood. And his covenant. Read the book of Hebrews. So in a sense, I'm giving you some homework. But if you haven't read Hebrews lately, read that and it'll explain a lot of this to you. Paul will explain a lot of this to you. I've said this before. I think it's Paul's theology through the pen of Luke. It's Luke's Greek. If you look at the Greek, it's Luke's Greek. But it's Paul's theology. So it's Paul through Luke. Just my opinion. Well, I got that from... Other professors, but other professors, I'm not a professor from my professors in seminary. But look at look at another portion of Hebrews 10 in verses 12 to 14. When Christ now watch this, this will powerfully encourage you if you'll let it. But when Christ had offered for all time, see he's comparing Christ to the old covenant priests in the temple. The temple's still standing when Hebrews was written, and he's comparing Christ and what he's accomplished with those repeated sacrifices. And he says in verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time. A single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. What? It is finished, right? One sacrifice for all time. Offered by Jesus on the cross. All of the rest of those sacrifices pictured that and pointed to that. The blood of bulls and goats and lambs could never take away sin. It just covered it and pointed to the one who would come. Now watch, it said, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time. He's going to stay seated until all His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. 
Now watch this. For by a single offering of himself, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you are trusting in Jesus, you are those who are being sanctified. God, it's a work of God's grace wherefore He is growing you more and more into the image of Christ because He has brought you to faith in Jesus. And look what it says about you. If you're trusting in Jesus, if you're trusting in His, his righteous life, yes, and in His death on the cross for you that your sins were paid for by Him, look what it says about you. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. When we come to faith in Jesus, we are united with Christ and hidden in Him and justified on the basis of Him, not us. So His righteousness is credited to our account. And then God, we are declared righteous by God because we are in His Son, fully forgiven and clothed in His Son's righteousness. Christ is your perfection. And He, by the single offering of Himself, has perfected for all time. No, notice, those who, it doesn't say have been sanctified. Those who are being sanctified, who are being grown in grace, who are being made like Jesus. We are, we are growing out of perfection. We're growing to be more and more like what we already are on the record books before God. Righteous, perfected, hidden in Christ, forgiven, cleansed, clothed. Christ died for our sins. Notice the, the majesty of that. We should have paid the penalty for our sins. But Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins. He satisfied justice. That's why He sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane because He knew He was going to take the wrath of God, that cup of wrath, do all of His people that He came to save and drink that dry Himself. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. He was raised the third day, proving it's all true, victorious. He ascended and is reigning and He's coming again. But He only had to die once. There was only one sacrifice on that cross and it was a perfect one. And it perfectly saves all of God's people who He brings to faith in Him. What must I do to be saved? Be as good as you can and maybe God will accept you. Boy, that's powerfully encouraging, isn't it? Go, do more, try harder. You'll never be good enough, but oh, give it a shot. No. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. And you will be forgiven of all of your sins. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ, all of your sins have been dealt with. Past, present, and future. They were all future when He died for you. <laughs> I'm convinced none of you were alive then. He's perfected forever. See, He is the fulfillment. He's the one, all of that in the old Mosaic covenant. It's all pointing to Him through its prophets and its priests and its sacrifices. And it's all shadow and pointing to Jesus. And He came and He sacrificed Himself and He fulfilled all righteousness for His people. Paul is teaching and applying and stressing the truth of the Old Testament so that they might understand that Jesus is the Messiah and trust and rest in Him. Did you know that in Paul's 14 letters, 
He quotes the Old Testament some 270 times in 14 letters. You think he thought it wasn't important? No, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an explanation, an application of the truths that were there and were pointing to Jesus. The gospel is rooted and grounded in the history of redemption. Paul understood this and he went forth with the gospel, preaching the gospel from what we call the Old Testament. So being cleared, the charge came, the charge was booted, Paul was cleared. So being cleared by the court, Paul stayed longer. They beat Sosthenes, but they couldn't beat Paul and he stayed longer. Preaching the gospel in perfect harmony with what was predicted in the Old Testament. In, about the Old Covenant and pe- picturing Christ. Look secondly at Paul under a vow. And according to the Old Testament. It says this in verse 18. After this, after the kangaroo court and it being, well it wasn't really a kangaroo court. It wasn't accepted. It was kicked out of court. After this, Paul stayed many days longer. I'm sure that encouraged him. He stayed next door. Preaching the gospel. Teaching the gospel. And then, after many days, he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him are Priscilla, his sidekicks, Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he, he left them there. He left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. Right? But he went into the synagogue. And he's going to leave them there. There's going to be a church in their house in Ephesus. But it says they came to Ephesus. He left them there. He went in reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue. Now watch this. It's very interesting. The other Jews trying to kick him out and he stays. In verse 20 it says when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. <laughs> Rebel. It says, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And it's conjecture that he wanted to get back to Jerusalem before festival season. But um, for whatever reason, he wouldn't stay, but he did leave. Listen, he knew he was leaving them in good hands. He's personally discipled Priscilla and Aquila. They know very well. We'll see their ministry as we move forward and we'll talk more about them. So he's leaving the gospel with them. But he has to move on and I'm sure this is in conviction that this is what God wants him to do. He's following God's will and he says if it's God's will I'll come back. So he leaves it to God's will and providence and he sets sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, a port in Israel, right? It said, now watch this, this is interesting. He went up and greeted the church and then he went down to Antioch. Geographically he went up to Jerusalem. And greeted the church. And then he went down to Antioch. Even though that was north. That's not the way we speak is it? We hold our map up like this and look at it and go. That's going up and that's going down. But geographically speaking. Up to Jerusalem. Down to Antioch. He goes, greets, reports. And then he goes back to home base. Which is Antioch in Syria. And this is the end of the second missionary journey. So he's returning. He's ending the journey. And see. As I've sweated and wrestled and had no clarity and things kept... This, there's one verse in this section that popped out to me. It's another interesting tidbit that we don't get a lot of explanation for. I mean, how many times in the Bible are you reading through or studying the Bible and you go, Ugh! 
More information. Mm -mm, that's enough. Moving on. This is one for me. It says this. At Centria, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. New covenant, New Testament, new apostle preaching the gut, showing the fulfillment. But he's under a vow. And he's cutting his hair, which all sort of lines up with the Nazarite vow in number six. Why, if all that's fulfilled, is he taking a vow and cutting his hair? It's debated whether or not that was the Nazarite vow in number six or another vow of thanksgiving to God, maybe of thanksgiving for God's blessing on his journey and protection on his journey. We're just not told. But all it says is he was under a vow and he had cut his hair. And if you go back, I'll let you do that. Go back and read number six and you'll see the, the growing of the hair and the cutting of the hair and the sacrifices given at the end of the purification and the vow and all of that kind of thing. It's clear to see that Paul hasn't ditched all the old covenant forms. But he certainly has them under new meaning and seeing them through the light of Christ. Y'all don't see why I wrestle with this, do you? Look at chapter 21. We'll, we'll get there, but I want to read something from chapter 21. When he, he goes and he's visiting James in Jerusalem. And I'm just going to read this to you so you can see it. I'll make one comment. We'll move on. We'll, we'll get there when we get in 21. But he goes to Jerusalem. He's visiting James. In verse 17, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul's mainly trusted with ministry to the Gentiles. Also, he, he does try to include the Jews. Jew first, then the Gentile. When they heard it, they glorified God, right? And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. Now, they're believers. Zealous for the law. They're Jewish. That's important. And they now watch. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk in according to our customs. What? How? They says, "What then is to be done?" Or, in other words, how are we going to deal with this? Well, Paul. Then Paul pipes up and says, well, "All that mess has been fulfilled. We, we're new covenant believers. We don't deal with that or do that anymore." But watch what. Watch what's ha happening. This is in Jerusalem. It says, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. That's Christians. It's Jewish Christians, but it's Christians. And it reminds us of that verse in chapter 18. Take these men and teach them about the fulfillment so they'll quit doing stuff like this. That's not what it says. Take these men and purify yourself with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you. But that you yourself live in observance to the law. 
But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Now watch what Paul did. Then, the, then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and he went to the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Sermon over. Go home and wrestle with that. You see, Paul taking vows and fulfilling vows and helping others do that. He's clearly not ditched and disassociated himself from all the Jewish forms or Old Testament forms. And in fact, they said, you yourself live in observance to the law 21-24. Why? Why? If all of that is fulfilled and done away with, why is Paul doing this? And then the outlet to the washing machine breaks and the dog's itching and the neighbors have to take care of their dogs. And yesterday was fun. Thankfully, Paul tells us why. 1 Corinthians 9, 20 to 23. Watch this. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, so that you could say Jew and Gentile, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I have become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So even though that Paul was, was practicing some of the shadow, he, was, he seemingly held on to some of the Jewish tradition. He saw it in a completely different and new light. Yes, he, he saw Christ as the fulfillment. He saw the gospel opportunity. And he would make use of Everything that he could make use of to refresh and be strengthened and grow in grace and be a witness to those who were participating in such things. He had no problem with Jewish believers doing these things as long as they were doing them for the right reason. But not for Gentiles or for being made right with God. Paul did not object to Jewish believers voluntarily following Old Testament ceremonial laws as long as they didn't require it of Gentiles or trust in it for their righteousness. I mean, remember, he circumcised Timothy because of the Jews. He wasn't required to do that. But they knew he was, a, was half Jew and half Gentile. And just to remove that obstacle to the gospel, he circumcised him. But he would never allow participation in Old Testament practices or laws in order to be made right with God. 
when it, whenever it clouded the gospel, whenever it clouded justification by faith alone, anathema. Let me read Galatians, right? Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for as it is written, Cursed, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. Cursed be anyone who doesn't keep every one of God's laws. Perfect obedience is what is required for you to be saved. Praise God. Jesus performed perfect obedience for us. And then died to pay the penalty for our sins. Christ took the curse. Go and read Galatians. I could have so many scriptures thrown out here. He was cursed for us. So that we didn't have to be. But justice had to be satisfied. God doesn't grade on the curve. He can't sweep. Good grand, you know, grandparents sweep kids' root, sins under the rug all the time. The people who have, have the children say, those are not the people that raised me. It's true. But God doesn't do that. He is holy and righteous and sin must be dwelt with, dealt with. And it was dealt with by Jesus for all of his people. You will answer for yourself or you can have Jesus' answer credited to you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. See, Paul, but notice this about Paul. He clearly did not reject all of Jewish tradition, nor the Old Testament scriptures. But he didn't rely on it for righteousness, and he didn't require it of Gentiles. He saw it as picturing Christ and pointing him to Christ, and he used it to point other Jews to Christ. He used it all, he says, for the sake of the gospel. So listen, I don't think anybody, well, maybe there are. I don't know how many, very few, if any, true Jews in this room. If anybody tries to lay on you guilt, try to take you back into the old covenant, try to make you perform the festivals and all that kind of stuff, don't do it. Don't do it. It's an offense. And they have no authority to drag Gentiles into doing things like that, especially to require it for righteousness. But listen, as a believer in Jesus, if you want to go somewhere and, and, and have a, a, a you see the Passover meal done and all that and see, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you're just learning and seeing Christ pictured in it. But see, Paul, he, wouldn't, he would use whatever he could use and in including the tradition and being under vows. And maybe some of that just he resonated with that he was making vows to God and, you know, using a shadow form and solve various purposes for it. But none of it was his righteousness and none of it was required of the Gentiles. But one of the things I clearly saw jumping out at me through the accusation and through the vow is God, God, yes, God's, but Paul's attitude toward the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. And I just wanted to leave you with that and let you think about that because I don't know what your thoughts are. I don't know what your heart is. I don't know what your habits are. I certainly hope you're not what some people call a New Testament Christian meaning that you only read and study the New Testament and you don't look at the old. Don't be a Marcionite. But let's think about Paul's attitude for a minute to the Old Testament Scriptures. I want to throw two verses at you and, and, and then we'll be done. But what, look at what he says about the Old Testament in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. Watch this. All Scripture is breathed out by God. God is the source through men 
restraining sin so that his word was clearly communicated. Big discussion, we can talk about that later. But all scripture is God-breathed. When he wrote this, what was scripture that he was talking about? Old Testament. The New Testament was certainly in process, and some of the apostles recognized other apostles' writings, you know, God's word. But what they had and what they were using was the Old Testament. And he says it's breathed out by God. We know that. We believe that. And look at this. It's profitable for teaching. The whole Bible, including the Old Testament, is profitable for teaching, for reproving, for correcting, for training in righteousness that the man of God, the woman, the boy and girl, but specifically and particularly the man of God responsible for preaching the word, may be complete and equipped for every good work. It's not wrong to say he was saying the Old Testament is breathed out by God and profitable for all these things. But notice that second word. It's profitable. It's profitable. Every line in the Bible is profitable. Every line in the Old Testament is profitable. And we don't always see that, right? But everything God has given us in His Word is both prescribed by Him and profitable for our growth in grace. That we might trust Jesus and learn more about Jesus, learn more about God and His ways and His plan of redemption and be more equipped to rest in Him and love Him and glorify Him and share Him with others. And it's not just profitable, it's necessary. Be filled, Colossians says, with the message of Christ. And the message of Christ is from Genesis to Revelation. That's gospel, big picture. Listen to me. If you've been asleep, listen to me. You will never grow in grace without reading the Word of God. All of it. Your parents might spoon feed you and have spoiled you, but God's not going to do that. I know something about that. I was spoon-fed and spoiled. And growing up when I was in my 20s it was hard. I don't still think I'm not finished with that. You need the Word to grow. God's Spirit works through His Word. You will not grow without it. And yes, all of it. Yes, even Leviticus and Numbers. We start so good at the first of the year reading through the Bible and then we hit that section and we miss a day and we're six chapters behind and we miss two and we're nine and we're like, towel in the ring and can't do it. I have some sympathy for that. That's why we put together a two-year program. It's on the website. I love that pace. You read through the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice in two years. Anybody can read one chapter in the Old and one in the New each day. But you, you need it all. His Word is inspired. It's profitable. It's what He's given us. And we need to understand it. If you detach the New Testament from the Old Testament, the New Testament floats in the air. It has no grounding. The whole thing's about quoting and explaining and applying the Scriptures that were found in the Old Testament. The New Testament is an inspired commentary on the Old Testament and its fulfillment in Christ. Listen to me. 
In the New Testament, the Old Testament is directly quoted 1,600 times. Do you think the apostles thought it was important? 27 books. 7,000 other verses that allude to the Old Testament and reflect it. The law is explained and applied in the New Testament in the light of the coming of Christ. All of this is God's Word. So see, the man at the reunion was wrong. We don't do away with our Old Testament. The Old Testament is an essential part of the Word of God. It's to be valued, understood, proclaimed with Christ at the center. And Paul continued to value it even after coming to faith in Messiah. He continued to study it. He continued to teach it and preach it. And his practice and his preaching and teaching were in perfect harmony with all that the Old Testament prophesied and predicted that would come in the Messiah and in the new covenant in Jesus. He did everything he could do to reach Jews and Gentiles with the glorious gospel, the good news of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be so devoted to Jesus and His gospel. To live as Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Have mercy on us. As we read in the Psalms, help us to delight in You Help us to delight in your word and to be able to say, oh, how I love your word. Oh, how I love your law. Wet our appetites, Lord. Bring us to faith in Jesus. Give us a thirst for knowing you. Help us to know that comes through your word. Our witness will be fueled by your word. Our growth in grace is fueled by your word. Our transformation is fueled by your word. You feed us with the richest of food in your word. Christ is in every center, every book. Christ is the center of Scripture. May the gospel encourage and exhort and, and fuel us to take your word seriously and to be light and salt for you. I thank you for the Apostle Paul's example of self-sacrifice. It challenges me. It has challenged me this week. Make us people of the book, Lord. Not to worship the book, but to worship you, to glorify you, to love you, to honor you, to delight in you, to bring glory to your name. Help us, Lord. We love you because you first loved us. We thank you because you put it in our hearts. Lord, for those who are resisting you or don't know you, who are rejecting the gospel, help them to see their need of Christ. They don't want to stand before a holy God and answer for themselves. They know you exist. And those of us who know you, Lord, help us to see our need of Christ. And may it fuel love for you, Lord Jesus, and rest in peace in you. And that we might love and live for you. Lord, deliver us from all legalism, from all antinomianism, but into a life of true love of you, which love is defined in your word and as we're studying in, in the classes in your commandments. 
May it be a love response from us. We don't obey so we'll be saved. We grow in obeying because we are. Lord, help us. Change us. Mold us and shape us through the good news of a Savior who sacrificed himself for us, who satisfied justice for us, who was raised from the grave for us, and who is coming to get us again someday. Convert and sanctify your people. Grow us in grace. Give us a hearts, of, hearts of devotion to you. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.